The riots up in Baltimore had just taken place after Freddie Gray's death in police custody. I was at a meeting of pastors, and two of them were talking about recent events in our nation that were stoking racial tensions. Then one white pastor sitting there in the group asked a question to an African-American pastor who had been presenting. Why do you guys always speak of yourselves as a group? It was an honest question, vulnerable, asked in a friendly way. Everybody in the room knew each other. It was a largely Caucasian gathering. With a discerning smile, our black brother waited a second and then answered, well, actually, we didn't start that. <laughs> a few moments of silence, and then, as with you, it was broken by chuckles of recognition and appreciation for the quickness and the directness of the answer. Indeed, they didn't start it. Some folks today think that any mention of groups or categories of people is Marxist. And it is certainly true that Marx and his followers have viewed group allegiances as ultimate, as the be-all and end-all explanation of history and its movements. But at its best, American individualism affirms the importance of each individual. It does not deny the importance of the groups that we're part of. Identity politics is nothing new in American politics. Fat cats versus the uneducated fanatics were the slurs that were traded by the gold standard Republicans and the free money silverites led by Democratic candidate William Jennings Bryan in the late 19th century. Anti-immigrant language was common in campaigns in many parts of the 19th century. In fact, at the Revolution, whether you were a Tory or a revolutionary, could get your house burned down and end your family relationships forever. Just ask Benjamin Franklin about his son, William Franklin, who was the last Tory governor of New Jersey. Their political identities effectively ended their father-son relationship. First century Judea was filled with identity politics as well. Perhaps the most fundamental identity people grew up with was their family. Now, of course, it's God himself who designed us to be normally born into and reared up in families. Marriage and procreation are his design. Honor your father and mother was part of his law. We can be sure that family relationships were strong then, as by nature they always are. Another fundamental part of the identity of first century Jew was his Jewishness. This ethnic descent uh, derived from the very passage we heard earlier in Genesis chapter 12. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was fundamental to who they understood themselves to be and how they understood they were to live, including how they were relate to relate to everyone else that they met who was not Jewish. Ethnic pride ran strong among the Jews of Jesus' day, and seemed to even have divine approval. Jewish supremacy was reflected in the way God's law was understood, and Gentiles, non-Jews, were treated. The biblical idea of covenant mercy 
was often cheapened and twisted into an idea of genetic right. Even God's gifts to his people to distinguish them, the Sabbath, circumcision, the laws and sacrifices, became idols used like lucky charms considered apart from the divine giver and his holy purposes for these gifts. There was still another part of identity politics common in the first century, which will help us to understand Jesus and his teaching. Beyond simply allegiance to family and ethnicity, there was a patriotism, uh, a nationalism about the nation-state of Judah or Israel, and especially in political independence and its rule by a sovereign, a king from David's line that the Jews were literally from time to time absolutely fanatical about. The land they walked on had been given them by God and they knew that it was to be ruled by God's king, especially from the tribe of Judah and particularly a descendant of King David himself. Now, all three of these group identities had been threatened by the invasion and occupation of the land of Judea by Rome. The population was further scattered and diluted. More Gentiles meant more interactions and even more intermarriage. Family unit was under pressure. And of course, even more so, racial purity, the status of Jacob or Israel's descendants. Religious rituals which reinforced their distinct ethnicity could continue uh, sometimes and in some ways but only at the pleasure of the pagan Gentile rulers from Rome and its puppet states. Most decimated of all was the political nation of Judah. It was split up into a number of Roman administrative units, each ruled differently, none by full-blooded Jews, and especially not of David's line. Okay, friends, it's in that context that we come again to the ministry of Jesus recorded so faithfully for us in Matthew's Gospel. Please open your Bibles to the beginning of the New Testament. You'll find that is Matthew's Gospel. The book begins with a strong statement on identity, a placing of Jesus firmly in the line of Judah, of the descendants of David in this genealogy, so that when he's born at the end of chapter 1, we know exactly who he is. In chapter 2, Jesus is acknowledged by foreign wise men, and the writings of ancient Hebrew prophets. 25 or so years then pass. In chapter 3, John the Baptist has a famous ministry, stirring the people and drawing attention to Jesus by baptizing him publicly. And then the first thing that happens to him after that, chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan and he resists his temptations. He begins his public ministry by calling his disciples and ministering to the crowds. Chapters 5 to 7, we have the first long block of teaching that Matthew records as Jesus taught about much of what it means to be truly righteous in every part of life. So love, prayer, generosity to others, trust in God or prominent. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus performed a number of nearly unbelievable miracles. And in chapter 10, he especially equipped and sent out his innermost 12 disciples. He warned them that they would be rejected and taught them to respond not with fear, but with confident hope. And then in chapter 11, Jesus helped to clarify John the Baptist thinking about the Messiah, how it could be some signs of the Messiah were being fulfilled now, but others would be fulfilled later. And then in chapter 12, which we're at the end up today, 
Jesus has continued to assert his identity as Lord of the Sabbath, healer of the sick, God's chosen servant from Isaiah 42, one greater than the temple or Jonah or Solomon. We can imagine that nerves are pretty frayed in many of the corners where Jesus was being watched. He's not done what a normal guy would do. He's 30 years old. He's not settled down. He's not taken a wife. He's not had kids. He's not had professional rabbinical training or, or even at least kept up his father's carpentry work. No, he's just wandered around with no evident authority, just teaching, teaching, stirring up trouble and questions. He's been unusually harsh in his criticism of his own people. And unusually generous in his praise to others. I mean, just, you just look at the last few verses before ours. He's praised an African queen. He's praised repenting Ninevites. Those are the vicious Assyrians. He's shown himself to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's spent his time casting demons out of Gentiles and even praising the faith of one of the military leaders of the Roman occupying forces. What can he be thinking? From Matthew 13, 1, it seems that for some time Jesus had been teaching while sitting inside a house in Capernaum. And it's during this teaching session with nerves frayed and tensions high that the brief radical exchange happens in our text today. If you're using the Bibles provided, turn to page 818. You'll find our text. If you're a member of the church, come on, bring your own Bible. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his brother and his, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This morning I want to explain these verses under three headings. Identity assumed, verse 46. Identity questioned, verse 48. And identity revealed, verses 49 and 50. Let me repeat that for the neurotic among you. <laughs> identity assumed, verse 46. Identity questioned, verse 48. Identity revealed, verses 49 and 50. And then I want to apply what we learn of this new identity in four ways. Four ways. Number one, it broke old boundaries. It broke old boundaries. Number two, it created a new family. It created a new family. Number three, it is expandable and inviting. It is expandable and inviting. And number four, it is based on love. It is based on love. I pray as we consider this today, God will build us up and call us on further into the experience of his love 
First, the explanation, I want to just walk through this brief, simple text once to make sure it's clear to us all. This identity assumed is verse 46. Uh, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. We don't know exactly when this took place, but sometime while Jesus was teaching in the house, his family turns up. Uh, They didn't come in, presumably, because it was crowded. Maybe they wanted to have a word with Jesus in private. I doubt they were in the habit of making appointments to see him. But they turn up to see him, and he seems to be swamped. The reference to Mary having children other than Jesus is significant, especially given some of the false understandings of Mary that grew up centuries later about her perpetual virginity. All the mentions like this one here of the siblings would seem to tell against that far more recent idea than what canonical Scripture tells us. Anyway, the situation seems straightforward. Jesus' mother and brothers were there. But then we see verse 48, the identity questioned. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Evidently someone had told Jesus they were there outside. Mark and Luke mentioned this. Matthew assumes it. And it's this question that Jesus poses to the one bringing the news that made everyone's assumptions a little less assumed. What was obvious may, in fact, not be so obvious. Jesus asks the strangest question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? As if he were suffering from some kind of loss of memory about the most obvious facts, the identity of his own family. But the question proves merely to be there to provoke thought. Jesus was ready with an answer to his own question. And this would be identity revealed, verses 49 and 50. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this obedience to his Father's will is how, of course, Jesus relates to his Father. Obedience to his word. That's true from beginning to end of the Gospels. Jesus responds to Satan at the temptations about living by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, serving Him only, all the way to the very last night of His earthly ministry where He prays for His Father's will to be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now please be aware, this is not how Jesus becomes the Father's Son. This is how He is identified as the Father's Son. This is how you know he's the father's son. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works here. Our own obedience is not how we become a part of God's family, but how we recognize family members. God's family is constituted of those who do his will. Of course, it's completely appropriate that we should obey such a being as God. There's no one who knows more than he does. There's no one who loves us more than he does. There's no one who's more able to bring about things than he is. Why would we listen to anyone else, including even ourselves? If I have a difference with him and what I should do, but I have a very clear perception of his will, let's say from Scripture, I should follow that rather than what seems good to me. Because he knows more than I do. He loves me even more appropriately than I love myself. 
So I should trust him. I should follow him. I should obey him. And Jesus may here even be making a particular reference to the obedience that was accepting Jesus as who he is and for what he came to do. We read over in John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Obedience would be the hallmark of God's new family, especially in the recognition of Jesus. Jesus seems to more highly value here the spiritual relation than the physical relation. Remember, this is Jesus who would later teach in chapter 19 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus isn't calling his disciples to anything which he himself has not done. Jesus wasn't denying his earthly family here, but he was using it as an illustration of another family, which he was teaching is even more basic to our identity than our earthly family. Now, do not misunderstand this. Anyone here, let's pick the category of, say, young mothers, or faithful children caring for aging parents, anyone who is pouring their life out into their physical family, Jesus is not attacking what you're doing here. That, 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 that's a good and can be a wonderfully godly thing to do as part of your devotion to the Lord. I think we need to realize that there is, along with the family that we're pouring ourselves out for, an even better family that we are called to be a part of. The family of God, represented in the church, in which we learn to obey all that Jesus taught. And we're left with the revolutionary thought that perhaps the church is not here for the family so much as the family is here for the church. That is, the evolution of love and concern in the human's life begins with the grade school of the family, where self-interest is tied up so nearly with those with whom we are so close and have so much to do. But we can begin to love people outside of ourselves. But that's meant to take us on to the high school of the local church, where we learn that we are to love even those more distant than us and across physical boundaries and barriers in our world, social barriers, because we have Christ in common. And so we give ourselves in love for others. My Christian friends, I call you brothers and sisters because that is what you've been made to me by Christ. I still have my immediate family. We still have parents, siblings, spouse, children. We're still called to love them and care for them. <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We have the joy of being reconciled to Christ, but that reconciliation to Christ fuels our obedience to Him throughout the rest of our lives, including in our relationships with our physical family. So our, our chief obligation is not to our physical family, but our physical family is blessed by our devotion to God who then turns us back to love ourselves and to love Him and to love our own families and perhaps to do that in ways even more than we might in our flesh want to. So our love for our families, when we stop making them ultimate, sinfully, idolatrously ultimate, actually can increase as God calls on even more of us and equips us 
to love those he's placed us with. We're also part of this new family. And that's why we use this language of brother and sister. We've been made brothers and sisters by all having Christ for our brother. And God is our reconciled father. It's the priority of your relationship with the Lord which can actually turn you back to those difficult relationships in your physical family. Christians prioritize doing God's will even over family obligations if need be. Family obligations cannot be seen as ultimate. And any Christianity which simply acts to stiffen or strengthen the family or the nation or ethnicity is anti-Christianity. So Jewish family, nation, would have been especially tied up together under the pressure of the Roman occupation. That would have emphasized it all. So I think when Jesus said these words, he might have sounded particularly treacherous and traitorous to his people. How dare he say things like this when we are under such pressure? Even as Jesus was in the midst of himself being rejected, at least by the leaders of his people and many other nations, there was this new family forming around them. Well, in the rest of our time, I want to look at four basic applications of this revolutionary truth. So let's consider what this new identity means to us in at least four ways. First, this new identity immediately had the effect of breaking down old boundaries. Of breaking down old boundaries. These three identities that I've been mentioning of family, ethnicity, nation, each one of those would have been challenged by Jesus' words here. Just read through it and think about them. At least any claim to supreme allegiance would have been. Under the pressure of the Roman occupation, such boundary-breaking words would not have been welcomed with open arms. Now, Jesus was not attacking the idea, let's pick one of them, let's say of national Israel. He was not attacking the idea of Jewish ethnicity. He wasn't attacking the idea of the family. He was simply showing that the biological family was given to us by God, not only for the way it itself functions to benefit us by itself, but also because by it, we would come to see another reality illustrated and pointed forward to. Jesus was clearly showing here, not that the family is bad, but merely that it's not ultimate. Physical relation would not limit the scope of his concern, nor should it limit ours. My Christian friend, I wonder if there are groups of people you simply won't share the gospel with. I don't mean people who live in another country or who don't speak your language. I mean the people that you are around pretty regularly, that you see maybe even every day. Are there certain kinds of people who are just beyond your concern? I wonder when Jesus pointed to his disciples here, if there were categories of people that he intended to not be among them. We know he had old and young. We know he had politically revolutionary zealots and their opposites, those who would collaborate with Rome. He had men and women. He had Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, those of low status and high. Would we as a church reflect the extent of God's concern better 
If we labored to share the gospel with more different kinds of people than we're currently doing? I know that some friends I was talking with about this passage said that before they were Christians, they really only got to know the people they worked with. They would be the ones that they would spend their days with at the office and then their nights and weekends with socially. And if you weren't in their field of work, they just didn't know you. But one thing that changes when people are converted, middle-aged surgeons get to know retired people as something other than patients. They get to know them as fellow members of the church. Gender boundaries, racial boundaries, differing social backgrounds, all of these borders that we often don't cross over much in life are broken down by the radical news that Jesus gives us in this passage. Brothers and sisters, if there there are groups that you have been giving your ultimate allegiance to, Jesus here is calling you to realize that that clashes with his lordship. There is no group that you're a part of that is as important to your identity, if you're a Christian, than your relationship with him. Jesus means to have brothers and sisters and mothers, as he says here, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Wasn't Isaac just a few weeks ago telling us about this through the Lord's work in Isaiah, where he said the day would come when he would say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Friends, Jesus is announcing that day. That that day that the Lord prophesied through Isaiah, Jesus is here announcing it. He is welcoming into his family not just fellow Jews, but also those of Egypt and Assyria who would hear and believe and obey. Some here have or have had great families, and that's a wonderful blessing of God. But that must not be idolized. Surely since you've become a Christian, you've noticed your heart for people beyond your family growing. What kind of people did you used to never talk to that now have become some of your regular friends in Christ? Pray that we as a church will more and more reflect the width and breadth of God's saving concern as our new identity in Christ breaks down old boundaries. This new identity, number two, also created a whole new family. Barriers were broken down not merely to break them, but because another reality began to overcome them, to overpower them. (coughs) It's interesting that Jesus seems provoked to give this teaching merely by the approach of his mother and his brothers. We're not told of the conversation they had, if they did. We don't know if it was hostile or encouraging, if it was long or short, if it was heated or casual. That's just not what Matthew is telling us about. He recounts simply Jesus' question and brief teaching about the importance of those who are following him and seeing in him the work of God. He was using the common image that everyone would have understood of family to bring to light a new reality that he was in the very process just then of creating. So because of Jesus' statement here in verse 50, look at verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Some have mistakenly concluded that the way they become a part of the family of God is by obeying God. But friends, that is not what Jesus is teaching here. Obedience no more would create our relationship with God 
then it created Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. Yes, Jesus obeyed him and perfectly, but that was because he was his son, not in order to be his son. So it's with us. Obedience to God's will doesn't create this relationship. It reveals it. So how can you, let's say you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're on vacation, you came with a family member or a friend, how can you become a part of God's family? Well, it is by obedience, but it's by the obedience of someone else. Jesus obeyed his heavenly Father perfectly. The only one ever to do that. And he offers that rightness, that goodness, to everyone who will repent of their own wrongness, their own sins, and trust in Jesus. Who will take him as their Savior and Lord. And he promises then that you will be welcomed into his family. Welcomed by his heavenly Father as an adopted son or daughter. Forgiven entirely of all your sins. That's the new life that you can have if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. This new family that God is creating testifies to the power that is creating it, doesn't it? I mean, who else brings a new identity to Simon the Zealot that is more basic to him than his hatred of Rome and a new identity to Matthew the tax collector that is more basic to him than his love of money? In becoming a Christian, something, someone becomes more basic to the way we understand ourselves and our identity than anything else. How are we related to them, to the ultimate one, to God? That becomes the key factor in understanding us and explaining our lives, our behavior, our hopes, our fears. Here, people who work for the church get to know those who work in think tanks. Campus outreach staff get to know lawyers. Physical therapists get to know college students. Even in the same office, have you seen the amazing unity that Christians can find, even if they're at very differing levels in the organization? Here in this new family of the local church, we care about more kids than just our own. We love them. We pray for them. We work to teach them. We help them. It's not that Jesus' teaching here means that we no longer care about our biological family. We simply love them in more appropriate ways. I can think of one brother here in this very congregation who has loved his non-Christian family in extremely self-sacrificial ways, but he doesn't do that despite being a Christian, but he's helped to do that because he is a Christian. Our country, our ethnicity, our family all take on more appropriate levels of our loyalty because our love for them is now appropriately subordinated to our love of God who created them all and calls us to be good stewards of them all. I also think of what good news this is to those here today who are married but lonely or who are adult orphans or who basically have no family to those who never married or have no children. This is news that there is a family here for you. God can be your heavenly father. And we offer ourselves as a family here for you. We'll have the family meal tonight, the Lord's Supper, where we come together around the table provided by our host. This very local expression of that family will sit down tonight there around the meal that he told us to celebrate. This can be your family meal too. Because in the church, Jesus 
has created a whole new family. This identity, this new family, number three, is expandable and inviting. Is expandable and inviting. From the moment Jesus inaugurated this new family, it began to grow. And it's continued to grow year by year, century by century. Uh, I've been reading a history book of Christianity in China in the 20th century this last week, and it has been amazing. The first half of the 20th century, though there was legal religious freedom, there was a lot of cultural prejudice against Christianity in China. And yet, the church grew. In the second half of the 20th century, faithful pastors were imprisoned for decades, even killed. Churches were forced to go underground or even closed. Missionaries were thrown out. And do you know what happened? The church grew more. I'm not saying that's the strategy to get the church to grow more. I'm saying God is sovereign, and He will have His churches grow. And He does not need favorable circumstances to make that happen. Similar stories could be told about the church in Korea, or in Africa, or in the U.S. How on earth did the gospel grow among the very people whom Christians enslaved? I don't know, but it did. You can read reports from the 17th century with the Dutch up in New York and the Anglicans in Virginia trying to figure out why all these black Africans are coming asking for baptism. Because they're hearing the gospel and they're believing it. The Holy Spirit, even against the reluctance and the anti-evangelism of the Dutch Reformed and the Anglicans, was actually converting men and women and bringing them to know himself. Even in some of the unlikeliest places today, like Iran or Yemen, more and more people are coming to know the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we live, as we live as part of this growing family, we are called to acquit ourselves well at work, to be good witnesses there. We're called to be involved with others here, to love our own families well, to reach out to our neighbors as we have opportunity. Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, of course, we have to live such lives that would provoke honest questions about the hope that we have. Pray that God grow you in your hope so that your life will be appropriately provocative to the people around you. Pray that God help you to make your hope more transparently there and huge in your life so that those around you will want to ask you about it. The very way we give ourselves in love to our physical family or to our spiritual family can show huge gospel hope. That's what Paul was arguing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he argues for the resurrection of the body and the importance of that, that his life was inexplicable without a genuine hope in the resurrection to come. Of course, it may be that our neighbors would be surprised that we were a part of anything that we wanted them to be a part of too. How spiritually inviting are we to our political opponent? Do we treat our co-workers in such a way that they would even want to be a part of the same family we're a part of? What is our witness like? A large part of the way we as a church family work to see the kingdom expand and their church grow 
is to volunteer to teach the children here. Do you realize every Sunday morning we have literally hundreds of children here? But Mark, I don't see hundreds leave when they say, if you're a praise factor, you can now go. Yeah, I understand. That's because a lot of them sit right over there, and so they just drain out that way very quickly. That's because other than them are small, and they're already out. And some of them don't leave the service. But we have hundreds of children here. And do you know we have over 300 of our members, like a third of our members, volunteer to work with children. What a great way for us to work to see the kingdom expand and the church to grow. How many of our testimonies have their earliest gospel memories in church halls or classrooms as we heard the gospel from some dear Sunday school teacher? Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 envisioned the church expanding geographically, but also reaching out chronologically down the ages all the way until whenever he would return and working with kids is part of what that entails for us today. For many of you brothers and sisters, that simply means being willing to be a spiritual parent to some of the young people around you. <coughs> it is one of the oddities of our congregation that most of you are in your 20s and 30s. Visitors come and they're impressed. They think, oh, you're doing something really good. I'm thinking like, well, this is kind of where we live, you know? It's, uh, it's where young people are, and we love the young people. We used to be them, then we kept growing. <laughs> the people who were with us then left, but some of us stayed. You're welcome. And now we just get to keep telling the ones who come through. But you realize the ministry that we can have is spiritual parenting to this great troop of younger people that the Lord in his kindness through these circumstances brings along for us. Perhaps you've been wondering what you could do to have more of a discipling ministry. Friends, have some folks around for a meal. Talk to someone after church. If you've only been attending here for a few weeks, I wonder if you found this place friendly and inviting or not. If we haven't been, then we've been misrepresenting Jesus in that regard. Please forgive us in that. Be patient. Why don't you try to provoke some conversations with some of us? Friends, this church was begun as an effort to do work among children here on the hill in the 1860s and 1870s. This church has always been an outreach effort, and we continue to prosper only so long as we continue to invite others into God's family by truly trusting in Christ. I pray that some of you here today are hearing an invitation that is surprisingly exciting and attractive to you, and that you'll come to trust in Christ, and so come into his family. One more thing I want us to notice. This new identity, this new family, number four, is based on love. It's based on love. Part of the reason you're here right now is because the church instructs and encourages us in doing God's will. So earlier in our service, we read those words of Jesus about the most important commandment of God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's doing that will of my Father in heaven, as Jesus mentions here in verse 50, that God uses to create this new family. Friends, the Bible is no stranger to the idea that some obediences are more important than others. So Jesus had given this teaching in answer to a question about the most important commandment. So here we see that Jesus clearly implying that doing the will of the Father supersedes 
any of our trials, any other circumstances we might point to, any of our desires, there is no excuse for disobedience. And that means that ultimately there is no excuse for us to not love someone. We can't excuse a lack of love because God commands us to love God and to love others. So we can love God and love others, or we can disobey God. But there's no other speed in there. That's not a spectrum. That's an on-off switch. Jesus' assumption here is that the source of this obedience to God is your love for God. What do we read, what do we read in 1 John 5, 2? By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. That's 1 John 5, 2. Again and again in Scripture, we find the idea that if we have love, we will obey. So this new family is marked by love for each other. That's why we use this family language here of brother or sister. It both expresses the reality, and it helps to create that community, even by the use of that, that language. Tonight, many of us will pledge again before the Lord and each other. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise in affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others we will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows now, brothers and sisters, none of us live this out perfectly. But we should be living it out really or, or authentically, genuinely, even if not perfectly. I wonder, just a couple of questions as we think about this. Are your family relationships as loving as they appear to be when you're at church? Who do you show love to by inviting them over to share a meal with you? Just come up with a list for your own private purposes of the last five people you've done that with. Notice any patterns? Notice any holes, any lacks? All this mutual love is based on a shared love for God. Jesus displayed his sonship by perfectly loving and obeying his heavenly Father. And this is what Jesus has called us into and is calling you into. Come, love God with us. That's what we're about here. Loving God with everything we have. This love for God that we share unites us. It is amazing what closeness having a shared object of affection and devotion can bring. I've watched two of you who are strangers find you root for the same sports team. And you find like, great, oh, you too, yeah, me too. And it's like, seriously? <laughs> All right, if you can get a lot of identity from that commonality, just imagine if you actually have the same focus of devotion of your life that you share with someone else. That love for God being supreme in your life. Love for the Lord Jesus. Certainly, if you don't love God, you're not in his family. 
ultimately the source of our love for God, was not from ourselves. It's only because of God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19, we love because God first loved us. The very way our services are structured, we pile on the gospel for the first hour. We do that through the hymns that are rich in their words about how much God has done for us. We do that through the prayers. You know, we'll have a confession, we'll have praise. So we've, we've gospelized you long before we get to the sermon. But part of what we're doing there is we know in the sermon there will likely be, if it's going to be next vision of Scripture, a fair number of imperatives, of instructions and commands. And we, frankly, do not want to create a herd of legalists who just out of their sheer grunt say, yeah, I'm going to do that. We would like people to be won over by hearts of love to God so that they're looking for some way to find, to express the love that they feel to God for the grace that He's shown them in Christ. So that's what we do. We love God because God first loved us. This new family Jesus was announcing here was and is created not by our love reaching up, but by God's adopting love reaching down and taking us as His very own in Christ. How sweet is His love to adopt us so. I love it where Jesus says to Mary Magdalene at the end of John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene who'd been forgiven so much, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. That's what He's done. He's made a new family. He's brought us adoption where He gets to be our older brother and God becomes our Heavenly Father. So in conclusion, our identity is not finally found merely in our individual selves, what we have accomplished, what we have achieved. It's found in those we identify with by our love for them and by their love for us, by our love for Him and by His love for us. Let's pray. Consider for a moment these words from Ephesians 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Lord, your gospel is cosmically astounding that you would love us and love us as you have to take us as your very own family. Lord, we can see why it is that you would instruct your people from of old to love you and to do so with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor, as ourselves. Pour out your love in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.